I have pressed a button. So it appears that we are back with another episode of Beyond the Block. Derek, how has your week been? Well, my week has been really great. I took a group of students from China on a tour of Cambridge and Boston. That was a lot of fun. Sweet. Yeah, it was fun showing them around, telling them wrong information like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like uh, the reason that one if by land, two if by sea really refers to how many drinks the Patriots could have before the British got here. Oh, my gosh. All right. <laughs> so what you got? No, I, I, <laughs> I really didn't tell them that. All right. Cool. You're in New Hampshire now, right? Yes, I'm in New Hampshire. All right. I'm going to have to ask you a little bit about why the campus moved later. But uh, sound that sounds like fun. And uh, how, how are the magic tricks coming along? I know you've been practicing. Well, yeah, I've been practicing. It's a lot of fun. What I've learned is that magic happens not so much in the trick, but it's in the mind of the audience. And it's also in the personality of the performer, which actually is now hard because it's not just about the tech, the technicalities of the trick. It's about creating something within something. And I think that has something to teach us about missionary work and the gospel and other things like that. Okay, okay. I, I, I'd be interested in hearing more about that. But uh, for the time being, um, we, we do have a little bit of, of news to cover here. Um, a couple stories kind of snuck up on us within these last few days, and I don't know what right. of these. I, I feel like the easiest one to start with would be uh, the churches releasing a statement on the word of wisdom. Um, right, yeah, I just have a little bit of, Uh, content to say about that okay so the church recently this isn't even a clarification because i don't think it changed anything yeah but it's a in the new context of now that there's vapes and now that there's all these coffee drinks that have funny names that we might not know there are coffee so there was the new era article that talked about well we should avoid these things and be careful about these things and iced tea counts as tea and green tea counts as tea which is what i thought already was the standard right and then the church responded to people saying well this was just an article this wasn't an official statement so they came out with an official newsroom statement and so you know it's serious if you if you check the newsroom state statement and it's there yeah um and what what were your thoughts? Well, uh, again, I had the same thought that you did initially being this isn't really anything new. I've always I've always understood that, you know, e-cigarettes, certain drugs, green tea, iced tea, like even when I'm in the South, like I know there's members, I know I have friends and family that drink iced tea when we're in the South, but beyond that, they don't really touch the stuff. Um, but I, again, this is nothing new to me. You know what I'm saying? I don't feel like there's anything new. And even still, even though it's coming out in an official church statement, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand why this had to occur. You know what I'm saying? I'm curious about the timing of the release of this statement because, um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen the church directly address e-cigarettes. Like that's the only thing on this list that I don't think was ever directly addressed. Um, but but beyond that, I don't really know why this needed to be done. You know, if if they really want to get a lock on this thing, uh, on this word of wisdom thing, then perhaps we need to canonize something new. Perhaps some, perhaps we need to, you know, do the whole common consent thing and, you know, make a more direct 
condemnation slash prohibitions of some of these substances that we have questions about. But I don't I don't really know what the purpose of this was because nothing was really new here. Like, am I, did I miss something? Did I miss something about any of these substances as far as why the church needed to release this statement? Like, what, what, what's the deal? What's happening? Well, I think e-cigarettes have gained in popularity recently, especially this whole vaping thing. I also think that the, the status of medical and recreational marijuana has changed uh, in a lot of states, which isn't something immediately new. This has been happening for years, but I think that's kind of been bubbling around and that's where this came from as a theologian i wanted to say two things well those two things probably turn into five things but two things about this (laughs) one is i think what they're responding to is there's a lot of like cultural folklore stuff around like people have this idea that what's prohibited is the caffeine molecule and that's actually not what we've ever said was the was the problem you know, with these prohibited substances. My understanding is that the word of wisdom is interpreted to be the tea plant and the coffee plant itself, whether it's hot or cold, whether or not it has caffeine or not. And this would be analogous to the laws of kosher, which prohibit particular animals, uh, no matter how they're served or what temperature they're served at. And, oh, now I'm hungry for some pork. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Apologies to our Jewish listeners. Yeah. So. So, yeah. Uh, But so that's the first thing to note is that for me, a lot of this. So it's partly a health code and partly a spiritual health code for both physical and and spiritual benefit. That's what it says in this official statement. Uh But along with that is this other idea that dietary restrictions serve as a tribal identity marker. And I think that can't be discounted as a valid way of forming a cohesive community. You know how hazing works because you all suffer through something together and then it bonds you together? Yeah. To some extent, that's what dietary restrictions are like. And many religions, Judaism, Islam have these almost in every dispensation. You know, even Adam and Eve had a dietary restriction. Uh, They couldn't eat the forbidden fruit. I guess that counts as a dietary restriction, but it goes back to this idea that there's something about the way we take our bodies, knowing that they're going to be resurrected one day. What we do with our bodies matters. And that, and I think this gets into my second point that people try to find a rational basis for stuff in the word of wisdom. And I get, yeah, avoiding tobacco. That's a really important That has a rational basis, and same with avoiding intoxication and addictive substances, which can reduce your sense of control over your own decisions. But it doesn't have to be, not everything has to have a rational basis, Uh, like a basis in health, something like that. And here's the reason why. Because if something needs to serve as a tribal identity marker, it actually can't have a rational basis because if it did if it's logical that this is the obvious thing to do then everyone would do it and it wouldn't mark you out as a peculiar and particular people and i think that's something we have to take into account that things like tobacco yes generally other people are going to avoid tobacco because there's some serious consequences but things like the coffee and tea 
to me, I put that in the category of, yeah, there may or may not be a rational basis for that this, but the point is, this is something that at this time in this dispensation, we're doing together. And I should say in this dispensation, because coffee and tea weren't prohibited in any other dispensation, just like wine, alcohol used to be per permitted, both in, in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, you had people... Uh, now, drunkenness was prohibited, but not right. the use of wine itself. Right. So these things aren't like eternal things that are for all time and for all places. These things get adjusted based on the needs of the people, based on the social context, what will serve as a tribal identity marker, things like that. I and see. And so that's sort of my my take on making sense of the word of wisdom. Oh, I should also say as a theologian, you've got the text of DNC 89 and we don't follow it the way it's written in 1833. It's now been upgraded from a suggestion or advice to a commandment. Some of our uh, way of navigating drinks is different. Hot drinks versus mild drinks versus alcohol, hard, all these other things. Our, our approach to meat is a little bit different. So we don't, it's not derived directly from a fundamentalistic reading of DNC section 89. To me, I think the authority behind the modern approach to the word of wisdom is based on our priesthood keys. That is, our priesthood leaders have the keys to make a d determination about who is eligible and prepared for the temple and who's not. And that's sort of the authority behind the enforcement of the DNC, um, uh, the enforcement of the word of wisdom as it is currently understood, and not so much directly on the the section from the DNC. What do you think of these things? So um, I had a couple questions for clarification on, on that. You, now, you did say that the word of wisdom as we presently understand it, or sorry, as it's presently written, is more of a... Uh, it sounded like you said it was more of a suggestion than it was an actual commandment, at least the way it's written in the text. Is that is that correct? Right. I don't have the text in front of me right now, but I remember it saying something like, not by way of commandment or constraint. Right, right. And I do remember that myself as well, which is why I, I tend to be a little more uh, lax with how I you know, view Word of Wisdom practice. I know several people that do drink coffee and still have Temple Recommends, which is why... You know, I was very intrigued by that last statement you made. The priesthood, the people with the priesthood keys, the people who are ultimately responsible for determining whether or not we go into the temple, uh, have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis as to whether or not the people who partake of these substances are, in fact, being as the as the statement as the official church statement has said, if they are engaging with these substances in a way that is destructive, habit-forming, or addictive. You know what I'm saying? So I vibe right. all I vibe all the way with that sentiment. Like that is ultimately the mark of uh, the word of wisdom to me is to avoid substances or at least avoid. <clears throat> I want to be careful uh, with how I say this. For, for, for me, generally speaking, I've made an effort to avoid substances that are destructive, habit-forming, or addictive, but that doesn't mean that... Um, Gosh, I don't. Okay, I, I think my. I'm of the opinion that where purpose is unknown, abuse is inevitable. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, when, yeah. Like, if and we're gonna talk about this a little bit later when we get into the come follow me. And you've already talked about this uh, briefly with your statement 
what we do with our bodies matters. But um, I'm of the opinion that what we do with our bodies matters in so much as we make sure that we stay away from habit-performing, addictive, or destructive substances, or at least stay away from those substances to a degree to which we can be destroyed, or we can form unhealthy habits, or we can be you know, addicted to something. That is ultimately where I stand on the word of wisdom. And that, that doesn't, um, you know, that doesn't make anything any more defined. That doesn't draw any stronger of a line. And in my opinion, this statement doesn't draw, doesn't draw any stronger of a line simply because it's not doctrine the way we define it. So, um, you know, I, I agree with your statements on the word of wisdom and I agree with the sentiments that's ultimately behind, uh, the word of wisdom, at least as, we have discussed it so far, um, but I am not of the opinion that this statement has drawn a stronger line in the sand simply because it, it still leaves a lot to uh, be defined. It still leaves a lot wanting, in my opinion. Yeah, I do want to clarify that my understanding of the the community norms and the ones that I hold is that herbal tea does not count as tea. Right. It's not tea by definition. Yeah, it's not the tea plant. And it, even though it's called herbal tea, it's kind of like the words, the, the phrase soy milk. Soy milk is not milk. If I ask for milk and you give me soy milk, I'm not going to say, oh, it's a kind of milk. I'm going to say, no, this is not milk. Right, and right. And yeah, herbal tea is not tea the same way that that soy milk is not milk. It's called that, but right. only by by analogy. Mm-hmm. And I and I have no problem with herbal tea, right? As Thanks long as it does not come from the a tea plant. One last thing I wanted to say is we can learn from our Jewish friends and neighbors a little bit about this because I know many Orthodox rabbis will will tell you don't try to find a rational basis for all this stuff that we do because a you you won't find it. B if you find one, you might distort our practice in some way to make it fit what your rationale was. And see, the bigger piece is that maybe God wants us to do something that is not so much against reason, but is sort of transcends it, like asking us to do something that isn't isn't hurtful, right? I don't think God should ask us to do hurtful things, but God do asking to do us something that's um, that we can do that may not have a rational basis for it. And one of the best ex- examples of this in the Jewish dietary laws ha- happens to be the prohibition uh, against meat and milk together. And there is essentially no health reason not to eat meat and dairy together. And this comes from the, the prohibition in the Torah that says do not uh, boil a kid in its mother's milk. Mm-hmm. Now you can get some rational basis for other things like uh, pork, Right. Pork, if it's not cooked well, can actually be quite dangerous, especially in the ancient world. So you can get some rational. But if you try to find a rational basis for everything, you're going to end up very unsatisfied. And that's kind of my approach to the word of wisdom. I don't mind. I don't find it an oppressive burden to have to avoid coffee and tea. Um, I follow the word of wisdom. Now, if it if it for some reason changed or I was in a different dispensation, I probably would drink coffee and tea occasionally but i don't think that's too much to ask of us at this point Uh, now it is does seem like that for a lot of converts i imagine but not for me all right 
All right. Thanks for sharing, Derek. I didn't know that about, uh, you know, I, I knew that Jewish law did pro- prohibit uh, the mixing of milk and meat. And, uh, you know, as you spoke, I was wondering why that prohibition existed. But, you know, there's even though there's no harm in it or whatever, at least as far as we understand, it, it doesn't mean we have to understand why in order to abide it. And uh, I do want to put an earmark in that particular sentiment in that conversation, because this is going to come up in the come follow me when we discuss uh, Corinthians. Uh, Do you have anything else about the about the word of wisdom statement? No, I don't. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. So um, uh, I, I don't know where to begin with this. I guess I'll try to start from the beginning of this. Now, if you haven't heard uh, this particular story. Uh, a gentleman named Ken Cuccinelli, who is the acting director of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, and also Mr. Rogers' evil twin, he uh, got on NPR a little bit ago to talk about what's called the the new par- the new public charge rule. And uh, the point of the rule, just based on what I understand, seems to be to make it easier to deny citizenship to legal migrants. Now, this rule wouldn't affect asylum seekers or refugees. It would just affect uh, people with green cards, people who got uh, uh, visas, people who uh, are trying to get permanent residence. Just going to affect those people. Uh, Now, the new rule apparently is going to consider the use of government benefits, uh, education, and it's going to consider a person's income in determining whether or not legal migrants can receive permanent residency or temporary visas, thereby denying a path to citizenship to people who are uh, poor, uneducated, don't speak the language well, or anyone who is so much as likely to use benefits. Now, the interviewer, I think it was Rachel Martin, she quoted the Emma Lazarus poem to him, which says, give me your tired, your poor. And when she quoted that to uh, Cuccinelli, He repeated that phrase back and then added to it the words who stand on their own two feet and will not become a public charge. Now, um, now he went to do damage control later that day, apparently to, uh, you know, to, to, to explain what he meant when he said that, because what this isn't is not a rephrasing of the poem. Like, they're not deliberately, he wasn't deliberately trying to change the poem and get that put on the Statue of Liberty. He was just, you know, clarifying what he would mean when he said, Give me your tired, your poor, who could stand on their own two feet. Uh, then he went. Wait, I don't understand. Hold on. If they're poor, how can they stand on their own two feet? That's completely antithetical to the whole point of the poem. Well, I was actually about to get to that. Like, what made this thing seem especially disingenuous is even if these people happened to be poor and still were able to stand on their own two feet, like the fact that they can still be denied citizenship if they don't have a certain income, like that, that just doesn't make any sense. Like, apparently, one of the rules on this uh, new public charge rule is that if you have a certain degree below the median household income, you can still be denied citizenship. So it's totally disingenuous to say, give me your tired, your poor, if they can stand on your own two feet, when in fact, if you're poor and can stand on your own two feet, you still may be denied citizenship. So it's very disingenuous to say such a thing. 
but that's like not where the madness ended. Like this dude went on CNN later that night and fixed his thin white lips to say in a later interview that that poem was referring to people from Europe. And that Ew. response. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that in response to a question of what do you think America stands for? Now, to be fair, the sentence he uttered about who the poem was for seemed to be more deflection rather than a direct answer to the question. But he did regularly talk about self-sufficiency and said who can stand on their own two feet, be self-sufficient, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Again, these are words that he actually uttered. And again, as in the American tradition, like that was the part that really got me. He said, who can stand on their own two feet, be self-sufficient, pull themselves up by their bootstraps again as the American tradition. And then finally said, no one has a right to become an American who isn't born here as an American. Now there's like, just in that much, there's a lot to unpack. And we've already unpacked one of the things just about the disingenuous it's being disingenuous to say, give me your tired, your poor, who can stand on their own two feet. We've already talked about that. But um, I, he said the American tradition, which like would be comical if it wasn't so sad what the American tradition actually was. Like when Europeans first colonized America, they relied on as much as a trillion dollars worth of free labor from African slaves to get by. Like that a white person felt comfortable encouraging immigrants, the majority of whom come from Mexico and South American countries to be self-sufficient while no one in the administration he serves acknowledges that the first American colonizers wouldn't have endured, wouldn't have been able to wipe their own butts without the labor of enslaved uh, Africans is as problematic as it is ironic. And further, do our neighbors to the do our neighbors to the south, who often work the most demanding jobs in our country, do they need to be taught the value of hard work? Do they need to be lectured about the value of hard work by those who reap the benefits of their oppression? Like that is just that that to me is just one of the most brazen displays of privilege that I've seen. But that's yeah, like, I know it's yeah. It's it's there's just so many, you know. This is the the biggest proof that Satan is real. Is how these ironies can now sound so convincing to people, like white people telling black and brown people that they're lazy. Dude, makes no sense. Say it when white people were the ones who enslaved multiple races in right? order to do the work that they didn't want to do. Right, that's that's lazy. I it mean, is lazy. <laughs> In addition to being awful and immoral and completely antithetical to the kingdom of God. But we need to, to look. Uh, here's another irony is I recently learned that I don't know. that I'm not a lawyer I don't or a historian of the 19th century. But apparently there were a number of laws on the books in the 19th century limiting immigration uh, for poor people. Yep. And there were a certain number yep. of standards. And it just so happens that these weren't really enforced. No one enforced them, but they were right. on the books. And a lot of this actually had to do with anti-Mormon immigration because we had yep. poor Mormon immigrants from uh, from Europe who came to this country in the mid-1900s. I mean, the mid-19th uh, century, in the, in the 1800s. And a lot of people didn't like that. They were like, oh, all these these wretched Mormons are coming over and they're poor and they're, yeah. So right. we have, there's just so many ironies here that are layered. And my ancestors came to this country in 
the 19th century because mm-hmm. of food shortages in Europe. And yeah. I just wanted to talk a little bit about something that really hit me hard yesterday. I was leading, helping to lead a tour of Boston. Have you seen the Boston Irish Famine Memorial that's downtown? I have driven past it many times, but I've never stopped to look. So it's it it literally made me cry yesterday, just looking at the horror on the on these Irish faces. They were starving. There's a statue. There's actually two statues. There's one family that's starving and crying out in horror, and there's another family that came to America and they're well clothed and well fed and buff and their hair is done perfectly. Um, two Irish families, one who stayed in Ireland. And one who came to America, and I just, I just couldn't stop crying because of, of, of the potato famine. It sounds weird, but maybe it's weird if you don't cry when you think about it. Because this wasn't just a a, a natural disaster. Yeah. This was a structural and economic devastation where the people of uh, and government of England kept. Ireland poor and starving you know mm-hmm. it's, it's it's it just tears me apart to know that during the the greatest parts of the potato famine you still had a net export of food from Ireland out there was food it was just owned by rich people and you had um, tenant farmers who who had such small plots that the only thing you could feed a family on is potatoes which aren't even native to Ireland anyway and mm-hmm. so you had all these people, you had a million people starved to death, and you had food in England. You had a surplus of, I just, it's just, uh, it, it bugs me to think that people did this. Now, now millions, uh, obviously, came to America, and, and there was food here, right? There was farmland here. There's plenty of farmland here, and I, and, and I'm like, that's what America is. You know, I mean, we tease the Irish Americans here in Boston, but I'm so glad they're here. And uh, and I mean, like, we wouldn't be who we are without immigrants. And this isn't just true for white immigrants. This is absolutely true for immigrants of color. Right. And I think it's it's totally hypocritical. It would be it would be hypocritical for me to stand here. And not. And not and criticize other people for doing what my ancestors did. They came here yeah. because they were starving. My mother's family um, came here because of the famine. They were they were from Pomerania at that time in Prussia, and mm. now it's in Poland. But they came here. So they weren't even the right kind of Europeans either. Uh, and they were ethnically German. I yeah, mean, they were they were fine. But but yeah, they they came here to America. So many of our ancestors came to america for that reason now your ancestors came to america for for another reason and we have to name that as well not all of us are immigrants some he, right. some of us are native to america some were enslaved and kidnapped and brought to this country and others um were minding their own business in in mexico and we moved the border over them right yeah uh the mexican session of 1848 we took a whole bunch of land that was part of Mexico. And so not so there's just so many different ways that we're here in America 
and um, I just can't get behind people denying others the ability to come to this country because they know that if their family was in that situation, they would do the exact same thing, even if it was illegal. Right. People are going to do what they need to do to save their kids. That's what the Mormons did. Yep. That's what the Israelites did. That's what everyone does. I think yeah. that migration is a human right. If mm. you are not safe in a place, you have the right to leave. Yeah. I just it I just want to read oh I should I t- I'm talking way too much about this, but I want to just read <laughs> one verse or yeah. uh, what well, uh, one text from Zechariah. This is an amazing Hebrew prophet. People think that this whole social justice thing is some new fad. No, it's part of the word of the Lord. Let's look at this. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. So it tells us we're supposed to have mercy and compassion. Give him that reference again, Derek. Give him that reference again. Zechariah Zechariah chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Thank you, man. And this, you've got here the stranger, you've got the poor. So there's none of this, oh, this this land is just for us. Um, Which is... Something that the ancient Israelites could have said. They should have said, well, this uh, this land was given to us by God. It's just for us. That is not what the Torah ever says. It says you are supposed to welcome those who are, uh, you know, it's Sodom who, who did that, it did that. They were unwelcoming of strangers, and they did not want to share their prosperity with the poor right. of other countries. Right. Um, so yeah, that's all I wanted to say is that that this isn't some like millennial hipster fad to to care about social justice, and it's not something that I'm doing just because I'm my, uh, my political whatevers. And in fact, I'm not even that politically active. I'm a theologian. I care about right. what the scripture says, and we need to follow our commandments and covenants. And this is a major one of them. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm going to end this. Cool. Uh, I just wanted to add that um, in addition to, I mean, you've already pointed this out where your ancestors came from, but I just want to point out that Cuccinelli's ancestors were also of Irish and uh, and Italian descent. Like they were the wrong kind of Europeans that came in here. And if the laws that they're trying to implement now existed back then, he probably would not be here because, you know, Irish Italians, not exactly the most desirable Europeans that they had in America in the 19th century. So like we got to, got to be able to acknowledge that this is you know you already said it it's hypocritical to say that certain kinds of people are not allowed here while others are and you know to to, to anybody who doesn't believe race has anything to do with this like they you know they'll say things like i don't have a problem with immigrants so long as they're illegal then if that was the case why haven't we come up with a simpler solution to gaining citizenship you know what i'm saying like right now to become a citizenship to become a citizen takes way too long like we could have folks fill out forms give us a fingerprint for good measure and do a background check in the space of a week if we really wanted to and then let folks in but no one wants to do that like we haven't arrived that we haven't arrived to this tells me that the immigration issue is a lot less about distinction between documented and undocumented immigrant immigrants and, and more about the mere fact of brown skin immigration in the first place like we we, we can't fall in line with this as latter-day saints and right I, I was just remembering that a month ago, 
President Nelson at the NAACP conference or convention, sorry. He said that love was our greatest weapon in battling racial and ethnic prejudice and supporting coded policies designed to keep particular people out and control the border are, are not going to solve our problems. Like many of our neighbors from the South have come up this way in part because our policies have undermined their economies. Like pathologizing right. immigrants as not self-sufficient is not only inappropriate and inaccurate, but it also doesn't address the problem. It doesn't address the problem at all. It, instead, it just drives a wedge between struggling groups of people, all of whom need better wages, better living conditions. And if we can err on the side of compassion, as that scripture in Zechariah says, to make this happen, we're going to be the better for it. Like there, we, we don't have, like at least statistically and historically speaking, we don't have anything to lose by erring on the side of compassion. Like letting immigrants mm -hmm. in has actually stimulated our economy. More crime has not been a reality as more immigrants from the South have come in. We, we don't have the statistical or historical ground to act in the way that we're acting currently. And as Latter-day Saints, we cannot support it. Yeah, I'd rather, I think there are something like 11 million undocumented migrants here in this country. And I find that that it's it would just be better to like document them all and give them a, a a way of working in this country um without without having to hide without having to do things in secret at least then we know what's going on and we can and this really is what the church's official position is i for p listeners that didn't listen uh to our previous episode there was a church statement, and I think it was 2011, that basically said what we should do is figure out a way for these uh, undocumented workers to square themselves with the law and stay working here in this country. I'm like, mm. yeah, that 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 is the minimum, you know, of what we we can do. And I think there's I think there's some people that think that to be a Latter Day Saint is to be politically conservative, and that's not true. Correct. Anyway, uh, you, you wanted to connect this to, um, is this a good segue into what you wanted to say yeah, about? Yeah, I think okay. so. I think so. So let's talk a little bit about the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is the largest Lutheran body in the United States. Um, I think it has about 5 million members, one of the largest Protestant groups as well. Um, and they recently had their churchwide assembly, which is kind of like a general convention, except it's a legislative and deliberative body where they come and they vote on various policies. They vote on uh, statements that they're going to make. And that's how the church is governed is, is done democratically. And they have delegates uh, come made up of people can send clergy and uh, lay people to this body and then they vote. And it's amazing some of the things that just came out of this recent convention. I'm sorry, this recent churchwide assembly. So one thing they did is they came out with a major statement against sexism and patriarchy. They also came out with a uh, statement condemning white supremacy. They came out with an apology to uh, people of African descent, mostly uh, apologizing for not speaking out against slavery enough, not uh, speaking out against Jim Crow, and ongoing problems with racism within 
in the Lutheran churches in America. And they didn't ever have the equivalent of the priesthood ban, but obviously they had other things to apologize for. And they came out and upon the request of black members of the church, of their church, they, they came out with this statement. They also um, re-elected their presiding bishop, who is the first uh, pre- female pre- presiding bi- bishop of the ELCA. I'm like, wow, they, uh, they've done a lot here. Oh, and they also are the first denomination in North America to the, declare themselves, quote, a sanctuary denomination. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it is an expression of they're going to stand in solidarity with migrants and protect them, um, especially protect them from injustice and abuse and all. I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but I'm like, wow, there's so many cool things going on here. And it reminds me of something that that Krister Stendhal said, who also coincidentally happened to be Lutheran. He had three rules for religious understanding, and the third one of them was leave room for holy envy. And by that he meant it's okay to see something in another church body or in another religion altogether and say, you know what, I wish I had something like that. Because what that does is then it allows you to dig deeper into your own tradition and explore thoroughly the foundations of your own community Mm. and figure out, oh, actually we do have something that that is similar and it enriches everyone to have a sense of holy envy mm-hmm. and i kind of have a little bit of a holy envy for the evangelical lutheran church in america right now and i'm wondering well why why can't we do this and there's no reason why we couldn't like doctrinally there's no reason that we couldn't do all of the same things that they just did mm-hmm. and i think what they're doing is actually using their power because religious religious bodies in this country still have some degree of respect and they're using their power as a mostly white. I should say they're probably like 97% white. Oh, geez. Um, yes, they're historically mostly um, Scandinavians and Germans. And so they're whiter they're than historically, us. Yeah, you know, they're, the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is actually whiter than, um, how do, am I going to say this? That they're, they're whiter. They're, they're not, they're not, called a historically white church but they're actually whiter than black churches are black jeez because most most black d- denominations have like 96 or 90 you know 95 96 percent black people and the right. elca has like 97 percent white people so they're actually whiter so they're a white church in a the, very white church <laughs> in the in the same way that a black church is black mm. but um but i'm like Wow, some of these um it's amazing what they what they're doing and at some point I'd like you to read the declaration of the ELCA to people of African descent and let me know what you think about it. All right. You sent that to me. Did you send that to me in a uh, Facebook Messenger? I sent you a news article about it, but I didn't send you the document that they uh declared. All right. I'll have to peep that then. It sounds super interesting. Like I had no idea they were doing all that work and they had released all those statements. Yeah, uh, right. I should I should say that one thing that happened, um, maybe about twenty, you know, starting maybe twenty years ago to ten years ago, is a large number of the most conservative people left the denomination because of its increasing 
inclusion of LGBT people. Really? Yes. So they've ordained women since the 1970s, uh, 60s actually. Um, but the, the 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 one thing that they couldn't get on board with was being inclusive of gay people. And once the denomination in their churchwide assembly, I think it was 2009, they voted to allow um, uh, clergy, they allo- uh, uh, clergy in same gender relationships. And that really was a turning point for a number of people. And they say, oh, we left. And the funny thing mm. is, there was no other Lutheran body in the country who would take them because uh, the other Lutheran denominations do not ordain women. Okay. And so there was, they were too liberal for these other Lutherans because they, they supported the ordination of women. But this one thing that prevented them from being part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America was that they, that the, they didn't think they didn't think the ELCA hated gay people enough. So they wow. many of them left. So now now that they've now that they've gone, I hate to say things are better, but now that they're gone in the past 10 years, they've been able to progress to the point where they're doing a number of these amazing things. All right. Cool. That's great. I mean, unfortunate about the split, but still. Jeez. Anything else you wanted to say about that before we moved on to Come Follow Me? No, other than that that is a way that we can use our power and privilege to stand up for what what needs to be done on behalf of other people who may not have the same access to power and privilege. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other news before we move on to the Come Follow Me section? No, that's all I had for news. All right, cool. Then let's go ahead and move on to Come Follow Me. I'll try to be relatively short. I don't know what passages you wanted to cover today in uh, Corinthians. Um, I was gonna, I was probably gonna spend most of my time talking about chapter six, uh, thirteen through twenty. Uh, okay. I don't know if you got any thoughts on that. I mean, I'm sure you will, but I don't know if you already uh, wanted or planned on talking about that today. No, I didn't have anything specifically on that. Okay. Okay, cool. You cool if I uh, lead with that then real quick? Sure, go ahead. Thank you. So um, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20. Now we learned a little bit about the law of chastity here. Uh, some things to be sure, not all the things. And I say that because the case being made here against fornication is, or it seems to be respect for the Savior. Now we read in verse 19 and 20, for example, that, quote, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which we have of God, and you are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So um, the previous, like, five or six verses seem to be a condemnation of uh, fornication, but we seem to learn a little bit of the why in verses 19 and 20. I want to preface this by postulating that, uh, well, first of all, one of the truths restored in this dispensation is that the spirit and body are the soul of man, at least according to DNC 88, and that when the spirit and body are separated, we can't receive a fullness of joy, according to DNC 93. 
Elder Holland actually once said that this is the reason obtaining a body is so important in the first place and why any sin is a serious matter, because sin brings physical and spiritual death. Now with the body being such an essential part of the soul, the way we use and treat our bodies matters. This kind of goes back to what you said about the word of wisdom. And uh, I like how you uttered that sentence in particular, because that was exactly the thought I had as I read uh, through these particular passages, how we use and treat our bodies matters. Now, I believe we were given the word of wisdom in part because God does care about how we treat our bodies. And I believe we were given the law of chastity for the same reason, at least partially. Now, since the body is an essential part of the soul, and since our bodies are gifts from God, and since we'll be able to have our bodies in the resurrection made possible by Christ's atonement, then any kind of use of the body without divine sanction, uh, for example, marriage or something, is abuse of the body and therefore abuse of the soul. In the case of these verses in 13 through 20, fornication seems to be that abuse. We are told near the end of these passages, ye are not your own and ye have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So ye are not your own. I want to focus on that phrase real quick. If we believe in Christ, then we understand that we are bought with a price. And we owe Christ something for that. We, we owe him everything for that, really, and more. And in exploiting the body of another, or which means, which I suppose would by extension mean exploiting his or her soul, we desecrate the atonement of Christ because it doesn't have that divine sanction. And without that divine sanction, we are giving away that which is not all the way ours. Not to mention what uh, Elder Holland calls playing a game of emotional Russian roulette, but that's a bit of a different conversation uh, with regards to with regard to sex. I, I just wanted to point out this much, though, that uh, what seems to be the driving force behind uh, the condemnation of fornication seems to be out of respect and reverence for our bodies, which we would not have if it weren't for God, and which we would not again reobtain if it weren't for the atonement of Christ, and uh, abstaining from fornication is a simple means of showing respect for this body by not using our bodies in a way that God would, wouldn't want us to use our bodies without that divine sanction of marriage. Mm -hmm. I think that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, I think that the two things to that I, I think you you brought out that so well, I don't have much to, to say other than placing this in the context of Paul's larger argument to the Corinthians. And so... What's happening is he's, he's, he's really wanting people to think about how their daily life impacts the community and, and how the Christ event changes everything about how we relate to ourselves. You know, our body's not our own. Like, we're part of a community. We're responsible to one another, and what we do with our bodies matters not just for us but for the community. So Paul is writing from Ephesus in, in Asia, He's writing to a congregation he knows very well. So Corinth was a Roman colony at this point, one of the most important cities in Greece, fairly wealthy, um, fairly important, an import, a port city. Um, at this point, it was a much bigger deal than even Athens. And so Paul had labored here for a year and a half. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18. So Paul was writing from Ephesus. He received reports from Corinth about this big hot mess that they were in. It looks like they wrote him a letter asking questions about uh, food, sex, 
divisions, things like this. He also heard reports from Chloe's household. Chloe, I don't know. We don't know exactly who she was. She may have been a host or a leader of a house church in Corinth. But he heard these things. And there were a number of problems that that erupted. Um, and there were problems around leader worship, factions and divisions, sex, food, idolatry, uh, their worship gatherings, order within those, things like speaking in tongues, prophecy, uh, the sacrament, and the resurrection. So what's really holds all of this epistle together is that re- Paul responds to each of these problems with how their new reality in Christ makes all the difference to their daily life in community with one another. And in the end, the whole letter centers on Jesus. And if you try to take the the things out of context without their connection to Jesus, it, it won't make very much sense. Like, why do we why do we do it this way? And I think any any now now that I think about it, any description of the law of chastity that doesn't talk about the connection to Christ will sound very unsatisfying. Yeah, it'll sound oppressive straight up. Right, and I think that's the whole point of. Each of these commandments is to bring us closer to Christ, to testify of Christ, to witness of Christ to other people throughout our through our lives and our conduct, things like that. And so let me go back and talk a little bit about these divisions in Corinth really quickly. All right. So what happened is after Paul left, it looks like some other people came in, uh, fellow Christians, and started teaching. And then people became divided, and they had favorite teachers that they had. And and so Paul talks a little bit about this when he says and condemns them for saying, like, I am of Paul or I am of Cephas or I am of Apollos. Oh, and yeah. What, what ends up happening is people, like, marked themselves out as loyal to one of these t- teachers and they were competing with one another. Uh, not so much that, t- that the teachers were competing with one another. Um but that the people ended up advertising their loyalty and started started fl- splitting up into these factions. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about something. With, with uh, many mammals, you know how many mammals mark their territory with urine, that they'll urinate on a sp- space and, and get it, their smell there, yeah. and they'll claim out their territory, like cats, yeah. monkeys, dogs, things like that? Well... I hate to make this analogy, but these teachers, this can happen in the church too. Teachers can come in and and sort of claim authority over a people and say, well, it's all about me. And what's even worse than that is that people, that the people will let this happen, that they will claim loyalty to one of the apostles um, and and they'll say, like, I'm of Paul. And basically what they're doing is marking themselves with an apostle's urine. <laughs> okay. They're, they're basically buying into this idea that, oh, I'm of Paul. Like, this is this is what it's about. I'm, I'm part of Paul's territory. And this is really, really po- problematic. And this happens today where people will sort of idolize the apostles, the living apostles, and mark themselves with the apostle's urine. And say, look, mm-hmm. like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, and what they're doing really is a sort of 
a social proof. That is, they're in a context where they have an advantage of showing how um, loyal it is. And especially if their loyalty is somehow costly to them, doing this gives them a great social advantage. Because like, oh, look, I'm following the, these apostles to the letter. I'm doing this, and I am... And really, what Paul's doing is condemning this whole structure. Like, he yeah. even condemns people following Paul, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. But he's really diminishing his own authority and saying, it's not about me. I wasn't crucified for you. I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you, yeah. because then you would think that, that you belong to me. You, We all belong to Christ, and I love how mm-hmm. that that is what apostles should be about and how we should approach apostles is someone who just points the way to Christ and all right. of their authority is caught up in and contextualized by their pointing out of Christ. And can I just like quote that verse real quick? Cause that actually hit me pretty hard on this past, uh, you know, when I actually read over this passage, um, like the, the word he actually used in uh, chapter three, six through seven, he said, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave increase. And I thought that was super beautiful. Like Paul is teaching us about unity in those verses, and he's telling us that mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who taught the gospel to us because the common denominator in our conversion and in all our conversation moving forward is going to be about God. It's going to be about Christ. And I thought that was super beautiful, how he could point to his role in you know this whole thing, but he at the same time diminished it and redirected everyone back to God. I, I really like that. Right. I like that too, especially because he, like I said, this is a pattern he does with all of the controversies in Corinth is state the problem and then figure out how the new reality of Christ answers it. Mm. And one of the other things that he talks about is um, – this idea of, of the foolish, I'm going to quote from verse uh, 125. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is greater than human strength. And this is in Thomas Wayment's translation. Mm. And he goes on to say in verse 27, But God chose the foolish of the world so that he might shame the wise. And God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, those who are nothing, to bring to nothing what is regarded as something, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. And in our context, white people think they're something. And (laughs) straight people think they're somebody special. Um, And men, as well, think that they're special. But what Paul's doing is flipping this all upside down. I think if Paul were writing today, he would say that God chose the queer of the world so that he could shame the straight. Mm. Okay. Because this is really turning upside down every other ground of boasting other than Jesus Christ. And and he, he really talks about this. He like what he's doing is a scandal. It's foolishness both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And I think that is is part of his answer to to why um, and now Corinth was a proud Roman city. It was a Roman colony, very very cultured, very important, and um, and he's speaking to a context where what he's saying is really radical. He's basically saying some Jewish guy was crucified outside a city on another continent, and that changes everything. 
Mm. because he rose from the dead. That is going to sound incomprehensible, both to the Jews, who weren't expecting a, a, a dying Messiah, and to the Gentiles, who wouldn't have uh, gotten behind this idea of a, of a resurrected anything in the first place. So uh, he's really speaking truth into a very interesting situation, and that frames how he views his apostolic call because he's saying, what I'm doing is something that's embarrassing. It's not, I'm not coming to you with power according to the way the world thinks it is. I'm coming to you with this prize that is so embarrassing and so it's in the last place you look. And I think that's the heart of of the rhetoric of first Corinthians is he's saying all these things that look weak, but actually have the power to change people's lives. And I think let's, let's uh, talk about this in terms of singleness or did you have anything to say on that before I talk about chapter seven? No, sir. No, sir. Like uh, that was some good stuff. And uh, just for the sake of time, I would really like to get to the singleness conversation. I know we had a couple uh listeners who wanted to address this briefly okay so let's talk about chapter seven All so right. uh, so here we have paul talking about the role of the body here the human body the role of yeah. sex the role of marriage because apparently the corinthians wrote to him uh with a question and they said uh so seven one Concerning the things you wrote to me about, quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, end quote. Um, it looks like Paul is quoting what the Corinthians wrote to him. So the thing that says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, that's probably something that Paul was quoting. Okay. And then he says, for the sake of, uh, because of the potential for immorality, let each have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Now I want to pause right there. And people are going to use that to say that everyone should be married and no one should be string single. And that the dumb thing about that is that completely contradicts what Paul says in his own context. He says that in verse 8, he says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good if they remain like me. Verse 7, I wish that everyone were like me. So Paul is writing as a single person with that gift from God. So okay. he can't mean that everyone must get married. But what he means in context I should also say that the, the same word in Greek means both husband and man. And the same word in Greek means both wife and woman. They didn't have a separate word for each of those. So you have to look at the context. Okay. And I think what it's what he's meaning here is that each um uh let's for example in, in verse three, a man should give his wife what is due sexually and life likewise a wife to her husband. And, and when he says each woman should have her own husband in verse 2, it's um, this, this verb here, have in Greek, is a technical term for have sexual relations with. So what he's saying isn't that everyone needs to have a husband or wife, is that every husband should have sexual relations with his own wife, and every woman, every wife, should have sexual relations with her own husband. So if people are okay. already married, they need to... Um, have that particular faithfulness. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so this isn't a blanket commandment that everyone must get married. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't anything like that ever in the Bible. Um, 
So let's talk about, uh, now here I am as a single person. And of course, I've got actually some pride as a single person. Mm-hmm. And I love what Paul says in, uh, in I'm going to skip down to verse 32. I do not want you to be concerned. The unmarried person is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married person is concerned with the things of the world, how to please his spouse, and he is divided. And I think there's some truth to that. I'm not saying, and neither is Paul. He's very clear about this. He's not saying that everyone needs to be single either because that's not sustainable. But Uh what he's saying is there's room for both, and we're stronger as a community if we have people who are dedicated to uh, this division of labor, that some people will marry and, and have children, some people will not marry and be able to serve in other ways, and we as a community are stronger if we have both rather than if we have just one or the other. I should also talk about that there's some evidence from from inscriptions and documents that at this point in time, Corinth was going through a famine. So let's talk about the, uh, you know, connecting this with the Irish potato famine. Okay. And that for a period of time, there there was a shortage of grain. And it was not a good time to to build families. It was not a good time to get married. It was not a good time to undertake any special ventures of, of building up things. And I think that's possibly what he meant in verse 26. I think it is good for you to remain as you are because of the impen- of uh, this present distress. Okay. So because of this present distress, he doesn't name what it is, but it could be this famine. And that's also why he says in, in verse 29, the time is short. Now, some people have read this as to say, well, uh, he's actually talking about the second coming and the end of the world. And I don't think that at all. There's nothing in the context that gives that level of urgency or clarity around, around this. Some people think, well, oh, he thought Jesus wouldn't come back right away. And that's why no one should get married. That's not what he's saying. I think what he's doing, remember, like I said last week, Paul's letters are occasional. He's talking to a specific community on a specific occasion based on the needs of the moment. That's the whole point of having living apostles. And so for this time and place, it made sense for the people who were married to remain married, for the people who are unmarried to remain unmarried uh, due to the present crisis. Okay. And... um. And I, I think there's room here for a – if you read all of 1 Corinthians 7, you basically get what I just said is that it's okay for people to be single. It's okay for people to be married. Um, we're better off with both. Um, marriage is given as a gift. Uh, and um, he gives some good indications that that men and women – should not deprive one another unnecessarily except by mutual agreement. Um, now, he's saying this because some people thought that that even within a marriage that they should be without sex, that people now in Christ, now that they're married, shouldn't have sex. And he's like, no, nope, that's, that's, going, that's getting it wrong. Okay. Um, and I love what he says here in verse— uh, uh, verse 13 and 14 of chapter 7. And if any woman has a spouse who is a non-believer and he agrees to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the non-believing husband is made holy because of his wife, and the non-believing wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, I think there's this uh, this idea in the church, and I think this is more cultural than doctrinal, that if your spouse leaves the church or or loses faith, that now you've got to replace them with some better person who can be exalted with you. I'm like, no, that's actually the opposite because we're all about keeping families together and you're going to destroy your family in this life unnecessarily for the sake of your family in the next. And I'm like, Mm. that doesn't even make any sense. That's not what we're asking. And that's not what Paul is asking. Right now. I, if there's people who need uh, to divorce for other reasons, obviously, yes, that happens. But if, if the only, if an otherwise healthy and loving relationship is uh, challenged only based on the fact that one person is now no longer a believer, that's not, uh, we shouldn't pressure them to divorce if they want to remain together. Totally. Uh, Now, I don't know what you have to say about any of these things, but I, that's pretty much all (laughs) I wanted to say about first Corinthians seven. And if this wasn't clear from what I said, um, We've got a real problem with how we treat single people in the church. Yes, we have a problem with how we treat. And, and you know, I do want to come back to that. Single people in the church, divorced people yeah. in the church, single parents, like all that stuff. We have a problem with how we treat all kinds of people who don't fit the traditional mold of what it means to be, you know, successful or happy in the context of the church. But uh, single people in particular, let's you you want you were going to say more about that. Yeah, single people, divorced people. Um, I think what I said maybe two weeks ago was that the the best way to improve marriages within the church and to improve the quality of life for married people is to improve the quality of life for single people. And um, there's I don't feel a lot of pressure myself. Like no one's telling me like, oh, Derek, you got to get married. Um I, I haven't gotten that, but I do know a number of people do have that. And we have to change how we, we treat people because not everyone is going to get married. Not everyone needs to get married. Not everyone is going to get married in this life. And not all marriages that happen will will last. And we have to realize right. that, that Christ... So it's sort of to, to use Paul's strategy to say, well, what does this tell us about Christ? And I think what this tells us is that in a, in a sense, we are not our own. It's not like some competition like, oh, I need to get my wife um, in order to reach some like level on this video game that's mortality is supposed to be. That's not what it is. I yeah. think what God wants us to do is become transformed people who are more closely conformed to the image of Christ, who surrender ourselves to this idea of the body of Christ, and we're all in this together, whether we're single Married, divorced, um, single by choice, single by circumstance—any of these things—we realize we're getting, we're getting, we're going to get there as a whole team. It's it's like a handcart company. You know, you all get there together. Um, yeah, that's the whole point—is to get there together, not to to race and get there by yourself. And whatever you get is something that someone else doesn't get because we as a body are healthier if we're all. I mean, the individuals are healthier if the whole group is healthier. Mm -hmm. And we can never have this selfish idea of, oh, I've got my marriage, so I'm going to just leave you to whatever. 
you know, we're all, <laughs> you know, come to the sharks, fend for yourself. Yeah. So I think that's really what Paul's talking about here is that when you look at this through the lens of the fact that we're all the body of a risen Christ, a lot of these things fall. I'm not to minimize people's suffering if they're in a marriage or if they're single, but it goes back to what he says here in um, like verses 18 and 19 about circumcision. Yeah, circumcision is important on one level anatomically, but in the context of the group, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. If you're circumcised, fine. If you're not circumcised, fine. We're all in this together. I think he would say the same thing about marriage, too. Like, people wrestle over and over whether they're supposed to get married or whether, you know, all these other things. I'm like, I think God is much more uh, compassionate and understanding than any of us could even imagine. I don't think... That, that God is out to play gotcha with mortality that, oh, if you didn't press the right button at the right time, you're now going to be stuck forever with no. That's not at all the God of the Bible, and that's not at all yeah. the God that I know through the through the Holy Spirit. So I think we should just walk with people where they are. Remember that we're one one community. We should help married people, single people, divorced people, widowed people. Um, all these people, you know, just help them where they are. Yeah. And that's all I had to say about, um, okay. Anything else in Corinthians that you wanted to go through before we move on to the prayer roll? No, that's it. Cool. Then with that, let's go on to the prayer roll. Um, uh, I, I'm already a little spent from that Ken Cuccinelli thing and I don't want to, say too much about this next woman because she's been dealt with fairly like she got arrested but um in case you guys haven't heard this oh, gosh who was she i think her name was this, kelly something kelly jerry kelly that's the one so um jerry kelly um this is what she did she pulled a gun on a group of black teenagers who were, I, I think they were selling coupon books door to door as a fundraiser for their high school football team. So like these coupon books, I guess they have like restaurant coupons and whatnot. I remember selling them myself in high school and middle school. You like fundraise for school trips and stuff or other things. Uh, it's got special accolades or rewards if you sold these things, like they were like 10 bucks a book or whatever. And, um, yeah, so that's what these boys were doing. I guess they were going door to door and then Jerry Kelly felt threatened by their salesmanship, pulled a gun on them, called the police and held them at gunpoint until the police arrived. Um, now once that happened, you know, the police came, they let the boys go uh, they got some more information about the whole situation. Then they came back and they arrested her like the day or two later. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, this woman got booked, but she did get released and she didn't get a mugshot taken. Like, I guess her husband or something like that, like works at the jail. So she wasn't all the way processed. So she's basically out after, you know, pulling a gun on four 
young black men who are just trying to like fundraise. So I don't know. This is just the latest in a long, tired line of existing while black incidents. And, you know, this has been happening for ever. But like we have the great things like social media, video cameras that let us be able to, you know, dispense this information quickly and also get some of these incidents on video. But we got. I don't know. We we got a. We got these four black men who are going to be traumatized. We got the school who isn't going to be able to fundraise this way anymore. And we got this white woman out on bond because, you know, this is America or whatever. Just this is this is where we are. Um, I don't know if she's going to go to trial. I don't know if she's going to pay any fines. But, you know, damaging the lives of innocent black children. It's just one of America's favorite pastimes. And, you know, there's I don't know what's going to happen. I I don't think any serious punishment is going to come to this woman. I don't think any proper corrective measures are going to happen for the sake of these young black boys. I don't I don't think there's going to be any real justice except a simple acknowledgement that what happened to these boys was wrong. But who knows if anything is going to change? I'm I'm just tired, man. Like well, I saw this story, my heart broke, but I'm also just like, of course this happened. I'm not surprised at all. Like it's just further evidence, further uh, proof that what black people go through in this country is not an epidemic to the people in power. And until it is, nothing's going to change. And uh, we, we, we've been pointing this stuff out forever. We've been pointing this out forever, but I'm just going to say again what I said, I think, last week, the week before, and what I told my elders quorum when I taught a lesson on race relations. We, we just need more of y'all to step up. Like, when this stuff happens, we need more of you guys to be in disagreement about it. We need y'all to be more active in condemning racism. I don't know what possessed this white woman to think it was okay to pull a gun on four young black men. I don't know why she felt threatened by them selling coupon books. Just we we need to have this sense of entitlement, this sense of solidarity disrupted. And that doesn't happen without you guys. And by you guys, I mean white folks. We need y'all to disrupt this. We can't be the only ones calling it out. We need y'all to disrupt this sense of solidarity, especially in the church, because that culture pervades us as well. I I don't think there's a lot of people who are outright hostile to black people in the church, but I do think there's a lot of y'all who simply do not have the experience, do not have the exposure. And in so doing, when you find yourself in these situations, may be prone to act in a less than ideal manner. So, uh, uh, Derek, I'm just tired, man. I'm just so tired. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I can't I can't say too much because it's just so commonplace and I feel like I'm repeating myself. So I guess I'm just going to have to do that until things change. But I'm just tired of it, man. Yeah. One thing that I that I notice um, is there must be some part of her that doesn't think of black people as fully human. And I hate to say it that way, but. That's how you would react if you're a rancher and you had a coyote coming after your sheep. You would bring out a gun. Yeah, man. Like, in no way she would do that if this was for young white kids. Right. She would do like, fundraising. And she, she did this because they were black. Yeah, and and it's and she's sort of also entitled to black bodies in a certain way. 
She thinks that she has control over them, that she should be able to dictate what they do. Um, she also feels entitled to be threatened by it's there's just so many things wrong and th- and I think you hit on something it's it's not it, this isn't just an isolated incident she's raised and enculturated in a society that gave her those ideas that she yep. has the right to black bodies and that she has the right to um uh, to 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 think that black people are just an accessory to human civilization on the margins and are not fully human that that didn't come out of nowhere and and we we as white people all of us including myself are guilty of participating in this system and we have to to figure out strategic strategic ways of disrupting that i'm not sure exactly what that would look like <laughs> but but i i'm going to quote you know, I, I hate, you know, one of my favorite black people, and I hate that this is true, is that it's white people's favorite black person is Martin Luther King. And mm-hmm. he famously said that in the end, we're not going to remember the words of our enemies. We're going to remember the silence of our friends. Yeah. And so it's not like people in the KKK robes that are going to be the greatest source of, of, of problem. It's people like her. Um, it's the the daily things that we all are caught up in that lead to situations like that. That that's really, uh, that's really what's going to happen. It's going to be the white bystanders, and we as Christians should never be bystanders. Let's look at um, dude. The, that is against our ba- that is against our baptismal covenant. It straight is. Up. It's against our baptismal covenant. We have to stand up. We also. Um, have to learn from the parable of the good Samaritan. We need to be in there. We need to love our neighbors ourselves. We need to get in there. Um, yeah. Got to get in there. And speaking of getting in there, I, I, I maybe we want to talk into this, uh, this example of the attack on the protesters in Rhode Island. Okay. And so what happened is there was a number of Jewish protesters protesting an ice facility in Rhode Island. And they were engaged in a peaceful legal protest. Um, they may have engaged in civil disobedience, um, but anyway. So what happened is, the uh, there are a number of protesters, who, and their whole point is, it's it's never again. That is, they they want to take all the lessons that we learned from Nazi Germany and say we're going to stop this before it even starts to get there. And, and sadly, it's already started to get there. Um, we've already had people die in our concentration camps in this country, right? That needs to be named. Yeah. And so we yeah. have our Jewish friends, and I don't know any of them personally, but I have friends of friends who were there. I know Jews in Boston who know Jews in in Rhode Island, and this is, is devastating to the community that people who were peacefully protesting, nonviolently protesting, um, they were blocking some part, and they actually succeeded in shutting down the whole ice facility. They went and locked down things like that. They Go were di- they were disrupting. You know, people always ask themselves, "I wonder what I would have done in Nazi Germany if someone dragged my neighbor out of their house and locked them up and took them away." Uh, well, now we know. Whatever you do now is what you would have done then. And these people, these, I am so impressed to hear talk about holy envy. Let's. I'm glad that I that, that our Jewish friends and neighbors 
are saying, no, this never again means never again for anyone. We are not going to let people drag people out of their houses and take them away and we'll never see them again. That is not how we should behave as a democracy, right? As a, as a free right. people. Um, there are other ways of handling these things, um, less intrusive, less uh, dehumanizing ways of handling immigration. And this is, this is not what we have to do. So here we are. We have these protesters, and then a one of the guards, one of the prison security guards, takes his pickup truck and drives through a line of protesters. And there were some injuries, no deaths, um, but a number of people went to the hospital. And this is just another example of of entitlement. Like, I'm entitled to run you over just because I feel like it. Now, that what they should have done was um, have the demonstrators arrested, right? They're risking arrest. That's fine, right? Just have yeah. them arrested and removed. If they're trespassing, uh, you can do that, and they know that. That's, that's, we've done this type of protest for, for 40, 50, 60 years, right? You block something, you get arrested, you cause a disturbance, then you whatever. That's... But this guy decided he was entitled to take out his aggression and anger because they were blocking his way and his uh, and and they were they were doing what they're morally obligated to do is disrupt this injustice, and this guy decided to run them over, and that is not cool. So we right. need to pray for his salvation because what he has done is an abomination before the face of the Lord. There's just for no really? way of of saying of of making that sound pretty. Um, and so, so that's basically, I don't have much to say other than that, but these things need to be named and we need to do, we who have privilege need to figure out what risks we can take for our, um, black and brown friends and neighbors. Big time. And speaking of, uh, taking those risks, uh, I mean, the theme through both of, uh, both of our prayer roles was that, uh, we, we just need to do a better job about being active participants in the liberation of our brothers and sisters. Um, and silence is complicity in the, in the status quo that oppresses our brothers and sisters. No problem as big as anti-Semitism, no problem as big as racism is going to go away by ignoring it. It's, and to ignore it is an affront to our covenant to stand as a witness of God at all times and all things and in all places. It's, an affront to our covenant to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. It's an affront to the second great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, uh, you know, are our covenants not worth far more than our comfort? That's, that's the question I would pose to the saints. Like these are part of our covenants. And I would really hope that, um, the saints would start looking at it that way to, to see that our, covenants are worth a lot more than our comfort it's not a comfortable thing to be on the front lines with those of us who are marginalized but it's a hell of a lot more comfortable than abdicating our baptismal covenants exactly i think that's one of the greatest things that we learn from jesus is that what you risk reveals what you treasure Ooh, say that again derek what we risk reveals what we treasure jesus says where you what where your treasure is that's where your heart is and so what yes, we're sir. willing to give up 
even of our lives. And that's what Christ did. He risked everything, his rep, not just his life, but his reputation, his standing in the community, everything. He gave it up for the sake of those he treasured, right? Um, mm-hmm. And let me pivot that into my creating Christ-like change segment. And I'll just be real brief with this. Okay. And this is one tactic. It's a tool. It's not a it's not a hammer that you can use for every nail, but it's one tool that you can have in your toolbox that you can deploy on certain occasions. And it has to do with changing a space to make it more um more safe or more welcoming for you. And I I have this experience as a, as a gay person. I like, what do I do when I go into a space that may be hostile for me or maybe designed in a way to make me feel unsafe? How do I mm-hmm. change that? And at first, I thought my goal was to change everyone's mind and everyone's opinions in the whole space, that I have to wait for everyone else in the room to get on board with the right thing before I can be safe. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to outsource my safety and my sense of of integrity to someone else's uh, timetable. So what I've decided to do, and I've also learned this the hard way the other way too. I've gone into um, non-affirming spaces with the goal of, oh, my job is to change everyone's minds and I'm not going to feel safe until everyone's mind has changed and I'm going to have to do this in a very painful way. Like, And this this actually doesn't work. I've gone into places many, many years ago with the attitude of, oh, you're all homophobes, you're all backwards, and you're not going to get this, and this is going to be really hard for you, and it's going to be awful. I'm going to have to teach you, and and that actually doesn't work. It builds a lot of resistance. It builds a lot of resentment. It puts people on the defensive. It goes against the grain. And here's something that I found that has worked for me, and it's not going to work in every situation, but if the goal of a space is to make me feel unsafe. The way I can win is by going into that space and showing that I feel safe and demonstrating a new reality. And I think part of what I'm leveraging is this idea of expectations. If I go into a space with particular expectations and I broadcast those expectations and I basically have this attitude of, okay, I'm here, I'm gay, so what? It's the most normal thing he around. Um, I'm expecting everyone to treat me well here. I'm mm-hmm. expecting you to um, not say the wrong thing. You know, if I telegraph all of these expectations that I demonstrate, like I have a right to be there, like it's the most normal and natural thing for me to be there in the first place, it actually changes the space. Because here's a funny thing about human social behavior is when humans don't know what to do, we look at social cues to figure out what it is we're supposed to be doing, right? Mm. Yeah. And if people, if I come in and I'm gay and um, I make it into this big, hard thing like, oh, no, you're backwards and you're stupid. It's going to take you forever to learn. It's actually going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if I come in Mm. with this idea of, okay, yeah, I'm gay. And I know you're going to treat me well, and this is how this is how it is. People are going to be like, "Oh, Derek is safe here." Like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's that must be how it is here." And there's a mm. it's it's almost like a Jedi mind trick in a way. It's it's kind <laughs> of 
it's surprising how well it works. But I think you've probably seen this work because you've seen me in spaces where I share my views, right. I share my testimony. You've seen me in gatherings yeah. of, of other Latter day Saints. And I come in with I've observed it many times. I come in with this idea of like I'm not even gonna argue with you because I know I'm supposed to be here. And this is the way I'm going to be treated here. I don't say it in those words, but you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And other gay people may not have this this tool, and they may come in with this idea of, oh, no, I'm afraid. Um, or I'm afraid to come out. Or or, or, the, or the, even just even those hesitations and, and those sort of uncertainties um, through no fault of their own can actually make things harder to change the space but I go and I and this strategy actually has worked it's so surprising because I haven't had anyone come up to me and say anything homophobic in any of the wards in the Boston area like people who know me in person they know that they won't get away with saying whatever uh, backwards thing that they had in their mind now yeah. I, I probably haven't changed a lot of people's minds but I've changed people's behaviors because they uh Whatever they have in their head, they just keep it in their head and don't let it come out of their mouth. <laughs> As they should. Don't mess with Derek. People know by now. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I would be interested in sort of our listeners' reactions to how, uh, whether that something like this has worked for you or would work for you. So comment on our, uh, on our Facebook page and let us know what you think about these things. Dope. That's a. It's a great note to end on. Great practical application that we can take with us. So uh, thank you for sharing that, Derek. I'm rather liking this segment. It's a great idea, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, we'll we will see you all again next week. Have a good week. Next week. Take care, guys. Okay. Bye. <laughs>